So this is a sort of re-recording of the last 14th century's shear. It was with Sajigon part four. I say it's sort of a re-recording because um, when I gave the shear the first time, um, the way my recorder works is that after it finishes a recording, it asks me whether I want to save the recording, and I generally say yes, but I was in a conversation with somebody and I got distracted and therefore I said no and there's no way for me to retrieve the file. So um, what I'm just gonna do is very quickly go through what we covered in that, uh, in that shear. It won't be a, a full presentation. Um, we had been talking about Rav Sajagon's campaign to end the Jewish ignorance of Judaism. Um, he was very concerned about that, reflected in his discussions in Amunas Videos. Um, he was concerned about the lack of Hebrew knowledge. Um, he was concerned about attacks on Torah. Um, but I actually opened the shear by first backtracking a, backtracking a step. Um, we had talked about the strife between Rav Sajagon and the exilarch, David ben Zakkai. So I brought from the Sefer HaKabbalah of Rabbi Avram ibn Daud, the Raivud I from 12th century Spain, um, where he gave a record of it. Keep in mind that there are those who challenge some aspects of the history found in uh, nonetheless, I think this is basically the account that we have for the dynamic between Rav Sajigon and David ben Zakkai. And he says the following regarding how they went back and forth. Uh, David ben Zakkai, the exilarch, this is before Rav Sajigon is on the scene, um, took a weaver by the name of Rav Yomto and made him the head of the yeshiva. Then he sent off to Egypt. He brought Rav Sajah, who would become eventually Rav Sajigam. And he became Rosh Hashiva in Masamachsia for two years. Masamachsia, according to Professor Brody, is Surah. Then after two years where he was the Rosh Hashiva, um, which I believe is the same as Gaon for our purposes, there was a falling out between David ben Zakkai and Rav emes, Because these exilarchs were not people of truth. They would buy the right to be the leaders uh, from, the, uh, from the kings, as though they were tax farmers, you know, buying a right off of the government. They, when he says the kings, he means the caliph. David ben Zakkai had a law case, some issue of litigation. And the verdict uh, was inappropriately um, drafted to support David ben Zakkai. And he sent it to Rasaja for Rasaja to give it his seal of approval. But he did not want to do that. David ben Zakkai sent his son, named Zakkai, uh, a second time now to get the approval of Rav Sadja, um, to compel Rav Sadja. And he said to him, If you don't validate this, um, I'm going to hit you on the head with a shoe, which is a big deal, right? The, the, uh, it's a great sign of disrespect. So, Zafu b'nei yeshiva, while the Tamidim and the yeshiva were very angry, so they beat up on the son of the Nasi. There's actually another edition of this which says they hit him with shoes. 
And he went back to his father, humiliated. So his father, David ben Zakkai, has all of this power that he has, um, and he assembles, sorry, not Bekawach Gedola, Bekas Gedola, I need to use my reading glasses. Um, he had a, a large chunk of the community. And Rav Sanja had another group, smaller. And what did they do? What does Rav Sanja and his group do? They appoint a new Reish Galusa, a new exilarch, this fellow Yoshiahu ben Zakkai, David ben Zakkai's brother. So David ben Zakkai goes to the caliph. He has his brother removed. He wants to kill Rav Sadja. And for like seven years, Rav Sadja is in hiding. And while in hiding, he composed all of his books. It's a really remarkable story. In any case, going back towards Rav Sadja's battle to end Jewish ignorance of Judaism, we see it very strongly in his crusade against Chivi Habalki. Who was Chivi Habalki? So he lived in the last quarter of the ninth century, um, which is you know, basically the uh, just before of Saj is born in 892, um, and uh, maybe you know overlaps a little bit. Um, at this point, the sects we've talked about, the Isla Jews, uh, have been around for 150 to 200 years, and this fellow lives in a place called Balch, Chivi of Balch, also known as Bactria. Uh, it's a region in Khorasan, in what is today Afghanistan. And at the time, it was governed by different local dynasties, uh, you know, a few decades under this one, a few decades under that one. Um, the name Khivi, I've read, is thought to be of Arabic origin, interestingly. Um, that would not be local, obviously. Um, so Khivi was very influenced by the ferment of ideologies in the land in that day. I read an article once many years ago by Professor Eliezer Siegel where he called him the village atheist. Um, some of his questions are actually also found in Persian language Zoroastrian texts that challenge the Torah. Um, Rusajigon, in his responses, which we'll see some of, um, alleged that uh, that Chivi embraced Christianity. There is a view that he was a member of a Christian sect, although I think that's a minority view. Um, he was different, Chivi was different from the Isla Jews and the Karaites who challenged basically rabbinic tradition. Uh, Chivi challenges um, the Torah itself, Torah Shebech the written Torah. So much so, there's a Karaite, Shlomo ben Yerucham, who curses him in his commentary to Kohelas. So Chivi records 200 questions in verse, um, not in Hebrew, uh, largely arranged according to the order of the Torah, although sometimes the questions are tangential to the text. Um, like he'll ask about suffering, human suffering, on the verse in which Hevel is murdered. Um, we don't have the full 200 questions. Several dozen of his questions remain and have been you know, positively identified. Um, his main issues challenge the Torah's logic or its realism. He believes that miracles are really natural events. There's a natural explanation for the splitting of the Yamsuf, for the Man. Um, in his mind, God did not create everything and God is not perfect. Um, if he were, why would he have anything to do with human beings? Um, Judaism itself, he says, is illogical. He doesn't like Karbanos. He should join the club. There were an awful lot of people who had issues with Karbanos. Um, so on the sheet, I brought you from a work by Shmuel Avram Poznansky, Chuvos Vesadja Gaon al Shelos Chivi Abalki. 
Um, I brought you his questions, nice, some, you know, six of his questions, as well as some of the answers from, uh, from Rav Sadia. Um, before we see them, just it's important to recognize that Chivi was influential. His ideas survived for generations because they're standard questions and they sound from, right? They sound like he's accepting Medrash literally and challenging it because, you know, he's taking it literally. So, you know, the Ravid in Sefer HaKabbalah actually describes Chibi's ideas being taught in schools uh, until Rav Sadja, you know, uh, defeats them. Ibn Ezra mentions him and curses him, such as on Chibi's statement that Hashem did not know where Adam was and that Moshe calculated when to split the sea based on natural phenomena. So, you know, uh, Ibn Ezra says the bones of Chibi HaKalbi should be ground up the um, Kalbi Balchi, an obvious anagram there, but you know, not very flattering. Um, and uh, there's, there's much more you could say about Chivi, but just to, to show you some of his questions, I brought them in source number two on the sheet. For this brief recap, I'm not going to go through them inside, but his first question is, why didn't Hashem allow Adam to eat from the tree of life after he sinned? The second one, why does Hashem put... Uh, Kruvim cherubs with their swords outside of Gan Eden, as though he's afraid of Adam. He has no other way to keep Adam out of uh, of Gan Eden. Parenthetical note: Rav Soloveitchik actually had the idea, based on the Targum, that it was the other way around. That uh, the the Kruvim were posted there in order to keep the path open. Um, he wants to know in his third question: Why didn't Hashem protect Hevel from Cain? Uh, why do people suffer in general? Why don't people live forever? Um, if people are impure, what good does bathing in a mikvah do? The impurities in them. Like those, those are the types of questions, those are actual questions um, that he asks. And, uh, and Rav Sajigon um, talks about him. He talks about him in Amunos Videos. He actually mentions that he had addressed certain issues in his letters to Chivi HaKalbi. He also does that, that Kalbi thing. Um, the letters that Rav Sajigon writes in response, uh, based on what we found in the Cairo Geniza, uh, were written before Rav Sajja became Gaon. Um, and in fact, he signs his name in an acrostic on the verses as Said Ben Yosef, Said Aluf, Said Reish Kala. These are titles that he used before he became Gaon. The responses are written in Hebrew. Most of Rav Sajja's writing was in Arabic. Chivi wrote in either Arabic or Farsi. We just know it wasn't Hebrew because Rusaja says so. But remember, we don't we don't have his originals. We have Rusaja's responses. Um, Poznansky suggests that the reason why Rusaja wrote in Hebrew was because his replies were often against Zoroastrianism and Islam, and he wanted to keep the answers within the Jewish community. Could be. Um, Rusaja writes poetically, as he does in other texts, possibly to be appealing to the reader, help them remember his words, possibly because it, was earn, it would earn his writing greater respect. And Rusaja's answers are really not like very dramatic answers. They're pretty basic answers, although, again, they're poetic. They have a double acrostic. Um, they have an alphabetical acrostic, and they also have his name in, in, in an acrostic. And they incorporate layers of Tanakh references and artistic you know, framings of words. Uh, but like his answer to the question of, um, you know, why didn't Hashem uh, protect Havel is, don't worry, justice is served in the end. Um, his answer to why people suffer is that illness and suffering exist for our education. 
His answer to why do people die is that if people were immortal, they wouldn't work and they'd be more likely to sin. His answer to the question about Tumah is that mikvah works because people are not actually impure. The contents of their bodies may at times be impure, but people do not become impure because of the things that we call Tumah. People become impure only via their wickedness, and mikvah won't help for that. You need tshuva. So mikvah works for contamination that comes from you know, products of the body. Um, tshuva works for contamination that comes via our actions. Um, there's more, and it's all in the sheets. You can, you can read that uh, for yourselves. I gave the Hebrew and English translation as well. Um, I concluded the shir um, by noting uh, just a very interesting introduction to Amunos Vadeos from Rav Sadia. And maybe this was standard in those days. I'm not familiar with it from, uh, from others, though. Um, and he says, and this is my English translation, he says, I forswear by God, right? Mashbia. Um, any wise person who examines this text and sees any error should correct it. Any vague word, he should direct it in a straight direction. You should adjust whatever you see, correct what you see. He should not be prevented by the fact that the text is not his or, because, or by concern that I preceded him in revealing that which he did not. Even if you, you borrowed someone else's book, that's okay. Even though you're correcting something that I wrote, don't worry about it. For the wise have compassion for wisdom and favor it as warriors favor battle. He says you should have emotions about finding what is true, finding what is right. He quotes Mishle and Morla Chachma Achosiat, say of wisdom, you are my sister. Only the fools have compassion for their foolishness and do not abandon it, for which he quotes a Pasuk in Eof. And God willing, on Sunday, we will start on Rav Shrira Gaon.